So we are on Mishlei, Book of Proverbs, um, chapter 18, verse 15. Okay. And uh, we've been talking about wisdom, about a person's spirit and keeping our spirits strong. Um, welcome, Avril and Ellen and Gila, Harleen. You guys, Harleen is newer here. So everyone say hi. <laughs> And Allison, it's good to see everybody today. All right. Hi there. Good to see your face. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. All right. Verse 15. Leave Navon Yikneda'at. The heart of a discerning person acquires knowledge. Va'ozen Chachamim Tevakesh Da'at. And the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So what this verse is trying to tell us is that, you know, some people say like, oh my gosh, you know, you know so much, or how do you know so much about this to anybody, like about anything that they do, you know? And the answer is that a person usually gets what they put a lot of time and energy into. Sometimes it can be tempting to look at someone and say, oh, you're so smart. Oh, you're so talented. More often than not, it's not necessarily about IQ and raw talent. More often than not, it's about how much time, focus, priority, energy, resources, and hard work a person has put into something in order for it to be possible for them to be very successful at that thing, right? Like people say, oh my gosh, like to my husband, oh my gosh, you know so much Torah. I'm like, if you would only know how many hours a day he studies Torah, he gets up at the crack of dawn and he puts in like, I'm not kidding you, from like 5.30 in the morning until 11, he is praying and studying Torah. So yeah, if you spend five hours a day doing something, you're going to become proficient at it, right? I was listening to a podcast by some Olympic swimmer. And they were like, how did you get so good at swimming? You know, you must have the right like body type or the right muscles, you know? And she's like, that's a fallacy. She's like, I am obsessed with swimming. She's like, I swim for hours every single day to the exclusion of anything else. She's like, I don't have a boyfriend. I don't have a social life. I don't have a job. Swimming is everything. Of course, she's at the top of her field, right? So here, what we're saying is, you know how a... Uh, uh, discerning person acquires knowledge because his heart desires knowledge. So you're going to seek knowledge wherever you go and you're going to look for it wherever you are and you're going to perceive it, whatever you're doing, right? And the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. The person who is seeking knowledge, who's desiring knowledge, your ear is going to pick it up wherever you go because you're trying to collect sparks of knowledge, okay? You know, they say that Hillel, the, the sage Hillel, is a machayev. Machayev means he obligates anybody who is poor. What does that mean? That means that, hiya, Dina. That means, let's say somebody says, well, I would really love to be, you know, a more involved Jew, but like, I can't really afford synagogue membership and, you know, kosher food is really expensive. And, you know, I don't really have time because I work so much. Okay. I get it. Judaism costs money, you know, like most things of value. So the Talmud says, well, let's take a look at Hillel. Hillel, who was one of the greatest sages our nation has known, right? And ended up getting a whole college program named after him. Not sure how that happened. So he was destitute, okay? He literally had no money. 
So what did he do? He went to the study hall and he didn't even have the two pennies that it took as an entry fee to the study hall. Okay, he didn't let that stop him. He climbed to the top of the study hall and he peered in through the window, through the skylight, and he tried his hardest to hear, right, exactly what it's saying here, the ear of the wise seeks knowledge, the heart of the discerning man seeks knowledge. And he tried his hard to listen through the window to hear the sounds of the sages studying Torah. He fell asleep and it snowed over him. And in the morning, the rabbis came into the study hall and they saw that it was dark and they looked up at the window and they saw that something was obscuring the window. So they went outside and they see, lo and behold, Hillel fell asleep on the window. So they bring him in and they warm him up and they say, what happened? He said, I wanted to study Torah so badly that I, I did whatever I could to study Torah. So they say Hillel is Machayev. Hillel obligates those who are poor because in case anybody says, well, I can't really be a connected Jew who studies Torah because I don't have money. We're going to point to Hillel and say, basically, where there's a will, there's a way. You know, and people find a way to connect to the things they truly desire to connect to, right? People say, oh, I can't go to Israel. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. Here's the thing. There's never extra time and there's never extra money. Nobody ever woke up one day and said, oh, here's 10 days where I have nothing to do. Okay. I get, oh, here's like $5,000 that I never, I have no idea what to do with. Okay, fine. I'll go to Israel. It doesn't work that way. It means that you prioritize it and everything else works around it. I know very busy people who go to Israel. I know very poor people who go to Israel. Why? Because they made it a priority. They made it important. Hello, Sheila and Cindy. Welcome. Okay. I, you know, in my book, uh, Soul Construction, I mentioned an article written by Laura Vanderkam, who's a journalist, I believe in the Wall Street Journal. And she wrote an, art, an article about how everybody always says they're so busy all the time. I'll share the article with you. And she says, let's say that instead of saying I'm so busy or I'm too busy, you would instead substitute the words. It's not a priority because that's really what it means. You're not too busy for the things you really, really must do. Right. So, OK, so let's say you say, oh, no, I, I, I haven't seen the doctor about my hacking cough. My health is not a priority. I mean, that's really what you're saying with your choices in time management, right? Or let's say you say, oh my gosh, I totally forgot about your birthday. It's not a priority. I don't necessarily recommend you tell that to somebody because it could be a little disastrous. But in your mind, just recognize when it's a really, really important milestone for you, you're not going to forget it. So it means it's not a priority. And to some degree, that's okay. Everything can't be a priority all the time. But decide what your priorities really are. And don't just delude yourself by saying, well, I'm too busy. If you really want wisdom, your heart will find it and your ear will find it. That's what our verse is telling us. Okay. Let's go to the commentary. The discerning man is one who gains understanding. We're on page 192, by the way. The discerning man is one who gains understanding for himself by inference and deduction. So Malbim is distinguishing between the two words used here, the heart of a discerning man and the ear of the wise. So discerning in Hebrew is navon, right? Which we've translated as being intuitive or insightful. And wise is chacham. Okay, what's the difference? The discerning man is one who gains for himself um, who gains understanding for himself by inference and deduction. That means you hear something 
And then through it, you intuit something else. You kind of mix it with whatever knowledge or wisdom you already have in your own mind and heart. And you kind of mix it all together like a recipe, right? And then you you produce something new, okay? So um, trying to remember a conversation I had with my daughter yesterday. Um, I forgot what it was, but I was sharing something with her. And she was saying, oh, that's like really similar to what I just learned in school, da, 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 da. So she put together something that she got externally to something that was already in her mind. And she connected the two and, and put it together, right? And it deepens her understanding of both. That's intuition, okay? The wise man, on the other hand, so what is wisdom? Receives traditional wisdom on faith. So that means when you're not combining it with something you already know, you're hearing something new and unknown from an external source, from a teacher, from a book, okay? And in his search for clear knowledge, he is obliged to listen with the ear of the wise to the words of the discerning who have acquired such knowledge for themselves. Okay, so outside of Torah, an example of this would be the medical world, right? Let's say that I go to the doctor and I'm not having any symptoms, okay? This this happened to my nephew. So my nephew on the Koval side, so all of the Koval men are very tall. And I have one nephew who wasn't growing. He sort of stopped growing in his early teen years and the doctor was concerned. So he did some blood work and he said to my nephew, you have celiac. So he said, celiac, I don't have any symptoms. I'm fine, like my stomach is fine. He goes, I know sometimes that's what happens. But I'm telling you that you have celiac and you need to go on a gluten-free diet. So this is wisdom that comes from the outside. It's nothing that you knew, nothing you would have intuited. Nothing that like when you hear it, you're like, oh, that totally reminds me of this and that. Nothing. You're basically trusting sort of on faith an outside source because you understand that somebody from the outside has more expertise, more wisdom, more knowledge, more experience than you do, right? And so you trust this outside source of wisdom, okay? Even though there's nothing inside of you that's resonating with it or believing it or understanding it, but you're like, listen, the doctor knows what he's talking about. Anyway, they put him on a gluten-free diet and within a few months, he grew a couple of inches. Can you believe and it's not very fun for a teenage boy to be on a gluten-free diet, right? Hello, carbs. Um, but he understood that what the doctor says, the doctor has more knowledge and wisdom than he does, right? So that's wisdom, chachma. Wisdom comes from the outside and you hear it and you take it, right? And you're obliged to listen, as it says in the commentary, to the words of the discerning who have acquired such knowledge for themselves. So the two half of the verses, then the two halves of the verse, the first one is the heart tries to make sense of sort of what it already knows somewhere. Right. And I'm sure you've all had this experience, too, where sometimes you are listening to words of Torah and you'll be like, oh, my gosh, that makes so much sense right? It like jives with a truth that was somehow already in your heart, right? Or you'll be like, yes, now I understand X, Y, and Z. So something that you had always been wondering, and now this knowledge fills that hole or like checks that box, so to speak. That's intuition, where something that you hear from the outside connects with something you already know on the inside, and you put the two together for something that's greater for wisdom or knowledge that's greater than the sum of its parts. 
And then the other half is the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. That means I'm always listening out for somebody who knows more than me, who's going to tell me something I had no idea about, or who's going to give me a totally novel way of looking at it. But when I hear it, I understand that this person has more knowledge and wisdom than me. And so I'm going to rely on them and trust them that there is wisdom here that I did not intuit for myself. Okay. Any thoughts or comments on verse 15? Hi, Cindy. Hi, Cindy. So can it go the opposite way? Like these days we're hearing a lot of information that just doesn't make sense. And we're able to discern that if it doesn't make sense, there's a reason it doesn't make sense. Yes, I would call that intuition. Meaning that's what I'm saying. It that goes, but that so it's the same thing. We also we have to be yes. wise about what we hear that is truth and wise about what we hear that just makes no damn sense. So you're allowed to say that makes no sense. Yes. And and I will say, like, you know, and I'm sure you guys have seen this all over social media right now because social media is an absolutely crazy place right now. I mean, all the time, but especially now. And you'll read something or you'll I'm telling you, when I saw that New York Times headline that Israel had bombed the hospital, everything inside of me rebelled against that. I knew it wasn't true. I knew, forget that the New York Times published it. That's not even why I knew. I just knew. I'm like, that's not what the IDF does. We don't bomb hospitals. That's not who we are. That has never been who we And I just knew it does not have the ring of truth. I sniffed it in a second. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I go through this with my kids all the times. So we'll, we'll say something, I'm like, you know, if it doesn't make sense, like it just doesn't make sense. Right. I'm like, or like, right. these, you know, with these scams or hoaxes that you'll get mm -hmm. you know, and that you'll be like, yeah, I don't know. Something smells fishy on this. You know, it can't be, yeah. you know, my kids, always say, how did cards. you know, you know, and I always tell them it failed the sniff test, you know, my kids are always asking me if food from the fridge is still good, you know? I don't know if anybody does this with you guys, but like they'll smell something and be like, oh, it smells terrible. Here, mom, you smell it. I'm like, why would I want to smell it if it smells terrible? You've already determined it smells terrible. I believe you, right? Throw it out. But, you know, if they'll say, oh, well, is it still okay? It's in the fridge. I'll be like, sniff it. If it sniffs good, I know I hope you guys will still eat at my house after this. But I'm like, if it smells good, it's good. That's my basic policy, right? So it's the same thing with like fake news, you know, and like when you hear someone say something and you're just like, I don't know, I think they're lying. You know why? So this is the basis of Malcolm Gladwell's book, Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote famous book, The Tipping Point. He wrote another book called Blink. And in his book, Blink, he determines that people who have expertise in a certain area can tell in a flash without even be, being able to describe how they know when something like a sculpture, a piece of art might be a fake or when somebody isn't who they're saying they are. Why? Because they have so much expertise in that matter that in a second, they're like, because of all their inner knowledge that they already have, right? In a second, they can say, I don't know, that smells off. Like I can tell if some website is a missionary website, even if they use all the right words and they've got all the Hebrew and they're talking about Jewish, I can tell in one second, these this literature that comes to my house, I can tell you in one second that it's missionary stuff. I just know. Why? Because that's my area. That's what I know about. And this is why when a person studies a lot of Torah, 
they become very expert in what has the ring of truth morally. And then when they hear something and they can be like, ah, yeah, that doesn't, something smells off about that or something's weird about that. That's not in consonance with Torah values. How do you know? Because I have spent X amount of time immersing myself in studying values and therefore I can tell in a second, right? The same way, whatever it is that any of you do professionally, right? I can tell when I read something, if it's written by a, an amateur, you know, um, uh, Dana and Laura do uh, uh, blinds and window coverings commercially, right? So you can tell in a second if something is good quality, bad quality, if it's going to work in a certain space, it's not going to work in a certain space. Avril is a musician. Avril can tell in a second if something is off key or not working, right? You can tell if it has the ring of truth or doesn't have the ring of truth. When we immerse ourselves in Torah study, we can sniff out, right, when something when something is off. So thank you. That's a great example. That's a great um, insight, Cindy, that it's not just about knowing what is true. It's also about knowing what's not true. Okay. Any other thoughts or comments? Rafi, in the morning prayers, isn't that part of what we pray for? To be well, able to more. discern? Yes. Is, is that like the, the line for discerning between night and day? Yes. Yes. Thank you, Heather. Exactly. So the morning prayers, there's a series of 15 blessings. And the first one of them is that God gives us the ability to discern to discern between day and night. And, you know, metaphorically, that's what it means. It means to be able to discern between darkness and light, between truth and falsehood, between good and evil. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Anything else before we go on to 16? Okay. 16. Matan adam yarchivlo, a man's gift makes room for him. And brings him before great men. So we're talking here about giving other people a gift, right? And how, how valuable it is to give other people gifts. Okay. It's very interesting. Um, when you think about our fight against anti-Semitism that we're waging right now, right? Our fight against anti-Semitism is being waged in various arenas. We're actually fighting a battle on the ground with actual soldiers and ammunition. We're also fighting the war of propaganda, the war of words, right? In newspaper articles, online forums, social media, protests, right? D talking. And finally, there's our spiritual effort where we are fighting with our good deeds, our mitzvahs and our prayers. There's so many beautiful opportunities now to like adopt a soldier, do a mitzvah for a soldier. We have JFX, we have our spiritual sword mitzvah challenge. It's been so beautiful. I signed up, I don't even remember where I got the name of a soldier that I pray for every day. Um, in fact, I have to tell you guys a crazy story about that, that I literally just heard yesterday, but before I do, I want to explain to you the precedent for this, this fighting on three fronts, the, the, the actual battle, um, the diplomacy, the diplomatic efforts and the spiritual war, the spiritual efforts. So the very first battle of anti-Semitism took place between Jacob and his brother Esau. 
And Jacob was obviously the righteous Jew and Esau was his evil brother. And Jacob had run away from Israel and he had gone to the town of Haran because his brother wanted to kill him. After two decades, he is married. He has a family and God tells him it's time to go back to Israel. So he goes back to Israel and his brother is coming to greet him with 400 men. What does Jacob do? He prepares for this epic battle with his estranged brother. How does he prepare? The Talmud says he prepares, I mean, it's in the verses. The Talmud points out that he prepares in three ways. The first way is he prepares for war. He divides up his family into two parts so that just in case one would be attacked, there would be a section who would survive. Number two, he prepared with diplomacy. He sent Esau a gift. That's what our verse is talking about. And he was a very wealthy man at that point. He had a lot of sheep and cattle. And he sent Esau this huge gift of cattle, like this never-ending, seemingly never-ending parade of animals. So that would be like our equivalence to diplomacy, appealing to government officials, writing letters to your senators, signing petitions, a rally in Washington, D.C., which, by the way, we are, JFX is taking a bus with our federation, uh, if any of you want to join us. Um, and finally, and, and also a part of this whole diplomacy is the advocacy where we stand up for Israel in public spaces on social media. And the third thing he did was he prepared spiritually. He prayed and he says to God, please, God, save me from my brother from Esau. So that is our precedent. That is where us Jews got the idea that when we fight anti-Semites, we have to fight on three fronts. We have to fight the actual war. We have to fight the diplomatic war. And we have to fight the spiritual war. Okay, so here's my story for you. So there was a yeshiva guy in Israel. This j just happened this week. And he's in the hospital visiting a friend of his. And in the next bed in Israel, you know, space is tight. They they share rooms as some hospitals in America also have this. And in the same room where he was visiting his friend, there was an injured soldier. So the injured soldier says, um, he says to the yeshiva guy, which this is not an uncommon thing that happens in Israel. He says, so new, why aren't you fighting in the army? Because yeshiva guys are exempt from army service, which is a point of contention, very much so in, in Israel. He says, why aren't you fighting in the war? He goes, well, you know, I'm, I'm in yeshiva, I'm exempt from the war. But he goes, I want you to know that I am doing whatever I can for the soldiers. So the soldier goes, oh, yeah, what are you doing? What's here? What are you doing? So he goes, well, I adopted a soldier. He goes, you did? What does that mean? You adopted a soldier. He goes, well, I, I have a soldier's name and that's my soldier. And every day when I pray and when I study Torah, I say that this studying and this prayer should be in the merit that my soldier should be safe. So he goes, what are you talking about? He goes, you're making it up. He goes, I'm not making it up. He goes, really, what's your soldier's name? He says, my soldier's name is Amitai Yehuda Ben Karen. Soldier turns white. He says, my name is Amitai Yehuda Ben Karen. So the soldier's friend who's visiting him says, oh, yeah, if you're praying for the soldier, for my friend, why did he get injured? So he goes, that's a good question. He says, I don't claim to fully understand the ways of God, but he survived, right? He's alive. So then this yeshiva guy turns to the injured soldier. He goes, let me ask you a question. He says, what time were you injured? He says, I, would, I was injured on, I forgot the day. 
maybe Monday at 4.40 p.m. He says, I want to tell you something. My afternoon Torah study session starts at 4 p.m. And I was running late. And I came at 5. He says, I wasn't where I was supposed to be to protect you. I'm so sorry. So the soldier, I'm getting chills just retelling the story. My, my husband's friend told the story. So I totally believe that it was verified. So the soldier gives him a big hug. I don't know what to tell you guys. This stuff is too weird to be a coincidence. As Jews, we believe in this concept of spiritual efforts and that our spiritual efforts matter, you know? So if you guys are involved in that front of the war where you're doing a mitzvah, you're praying, you have a soldier's name, you have a hostage's name. I got three names of children who are hostages and I pray for all three of them every day. If you're doing it, keep doing it and keep believing in it. And if you're not doing it, let me know if you want to do it and I can try to hook you up with the right place to do it. It's very, very powerful. But in any case, in this verse, we're talking about the power of giving a gift, right? Because that's also one of the aspects of fighting the war on anti-Semitism. And I want you to know when I get comments on my social media, anti-Israel comments, I always try, I'm not saying that I always succeed because I am after all human, but I try to be polite and to be respectful and not to be snarky, as tempting as it is, and not to be sarcastic to the haters of Israel, because that is my way of diplomacy. I speak respectfully. I answer factually. I answer the points. I don't insult people personally, right? Because I believe that I am fighting the war of advocacy in addition to the soldiers who are on the ground and my spiritual efforts. That is a part of how I can win the war. And one of the things that Jacob did, like I said, is he gave a gift to his brother. Giving a gift is a very powerful thing to do, right? I remember years ago when I was, my older kids were first entering the teenage years and there were a lot of contentious moments. And I was speaking to a therapist and I said, I totally messed up. And I like lashed out at my kid. What should I do? And she said, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get him a gift and you're going to wrap it up and you're going to write him a note and you're going to write how sorry you are. And I'm thinking a gift, like, what am I going to get him? Like, that's really going to make a difference. Yeah. You know what? It really made a difference. Getting someone a gift is, is a powerful aspect of reconciliation and connection. We see in Jacob's efforts, he did not have to fight a war on the ground, right? God answered his prayers and allowed the gift to work. And he didn't, his brother ended up coming in peace. It was a short-lived peace, but it was a peace. So this verse is telling us about the power of a gift. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. So what does this mean? Okay, let's go to the commentary. The term matan, gift, right? In Hebrew, modern Hebrew, we call it a matana. Matan is not an uncommon name in Israel, uh, a kind of a modern Israeli men's name. In fact, some of you heard the story of when I was traveling to Israel from Amsterdam and I sat next to these two young Israeli guys. Their names were Shachar and Matan. So it's, uh, it's, it's not an uncommon name. It means a gift. A ter the term Matan denotes presents given to both rich and poor alike. So we don't just give presents to people who need things. We give presents to people because we want to show them that we care about them. 
Some people say, well, this person is so rich. Like, what is my little gift going to accomplish? A man bestowing them may feel as though there is no point to granting gifts to the rich. Yet, it sometimes turns out that such gifts help him later on when he needs assistance. The wealthy remember what he has done for them. So a person is still touched by the fact that somebody gave them a gift. I know how I feel when somebody gives me a gift, right? Just yesterday, um, a box from Janie and Jack came to my house. Now, Janie and Jack is a clothing store for young kids. And I was thinking to myself, who ordered something from Janie and Jack? Like, I haven't shopped there in like 10 years. <laughs> and um, I opened the box and there was a note from a woman who lives in Atlanta who came with me on Momentum like six years ago. And she was sending a baby gift to my grandson. I was so touched. It wasn't anything major. It was just a couple of outfits and a blanket. But she wrote a beautiful note. You know, she wrote, I wanted to send you something for your grandson and gratitude for all you have taught me. I was beyond, beyond touched, right? A gift, it's very powerful. It's very touching. It's not about that the person needs that thing or doesn't need that thing. It's about the heart that you put into that gift. So a gift is a very powerful thing to do. And it really has the power to soften and melt hearts. You know, you can give to get, you can give a gift for gratitude. You can give a gift for reconciliation. Just, you can give a gift for encouragement. If somebody's going through a hard time, you know, I, I'll never forget when my first son's bar mitzvah was approaching. It was an extremely busy time. First of all, it was the first. And I feel like the first one always like puts you into a tizzy. And it was a week and a half after Pesach. So I was already freaked out. And that summer, I A, went on my very first momentum trip and B, moved. <laughs> okay. So there was a lot going on. Anyway, on Friday, the day of the bar mitzvah weekend, somebody came over to my house and gave me a bracelet. And they said, you know, everybody gives gifts to the bar mitzvah kid. I want to give something for the mom. I cannot tell you how moved I was and how touched I was. That was, see, I remember it. My son is 27 years old. This was 14 years ago. And I still remember how it felt to get that simple gift with that simple sentiment. So this is a very powerful way to show somebody that you care. Okay, any thoughts or comments on 16? Um, it reminds me of how we give gifts, you know, on Purim and that mm -hmm. we're challenged to not just give to our best friends, but give to someone that you really need to create peace with or have issues with. Yeah. Yeah. There was somebody um, on my block that was involved in a professional capacity with something involving my family, just being super vague for those of you who live in Cleveland. I don't want anyone to figure out who it was. And I felt that this person had acted professionally very out of line and uncharacteristically, I really lost it on them, which I, I rarely do. That's just not usually my thing, but I did. I was really, really upset. Anyway, it's super awkward living on the same block as somebody that you have a falling out with. <laughs> I don't recommend it. Um, and I was trying to figure out like, okay, I can't, I can't live like this. Like I don't, I don't have enemies. That's not my thing. So what am I going to do? 
And then Purim was approaching and I was thinking to myself, you know, I really should give this person Mishlach Manot because as, you know, as Heather mentioned, I often say like people usually give their Purim, you know, gifts of, of food to like their friends and, you know, sometimes their kids teachers or your rabbi, but really it's an opportunity to give it to somebody who, well, firstly, like I always tell my kids, like pick one kid in the class who probably won't get very many and give to that kid. Um, and, or somebody that you're actually kind of had a falling out with and that this is an opportunity for you to show them that you don't want to be at odds anymore. So I got to tell you guys, it was one of the hardest things I ever did because I mean, I really thought this person had acted very irresponsibly, but I was like, I don't want to be in a fight with a, a fellow Jew and especially not one on my block. So I decided that I was going to give them Mishloch Manot and I wasn't going to send my kid to deliver it. I was going to deliver it myself. And I did. I have never regretted it. I am so grateful that I did it. And it did the trick. It did. Now, whenever we see each other walking down the street on Shabbat, we smile, we say, hello, is it awkward? Yes. Will we ever be besties? Probably not, but it was an opportunity to heal a rift and it really worked. So thanks, Heather. Okay. Anything else on 16? Okay. Let's get in one more. Well, actually 17 to 19 is a, is a unit. So, okay. Let's see how far we get. Okie doke. 17. Um, he who pleads his case first seems just, but his neighbor comes and searches him out. 18. The lot cast makes legal judgment cease and separates the contentious. Okay. So first we're saying that the person who states his case first, like sometimes the first person who you hear from, you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, they're right. That's crazy. Right. But sometimes the neighbor who he has a feud with will come out and you'll see, oh, well, maybe there's more to the story. Right. The second verse is saying that sometimes casting a lot, you can, you can avoid legal judgment. And 19, oz. A brother may be defrauded out of a strong city as judgments at law are like the bolt of a castle. Okay, so very poetic words. What are we talking about? We're talking about exactly the example that I just mentioned, which is when two people, whether brothers, siblings, neighbors, get into a contentious fight, what should they do, what should they do to restore peace? So the commentary says, in a business or property dispute, it is better to come to an agreement than to insist on going to court. It's always better to try to settle out of court and come to an agreement yourselves, right? With mediation or some kind of, you know, mediator or by yourself. Because when you go to court, that automatically makes everything far more contentious. Where the loss is certain to outweigh the gain, then both parties lose. You have to spend all this money. And then sometimes the attorneys can make things worse. You know, if you really want to have peace, try your best to agree. Like going to court should be the last resort. If the matter is too doubt ridden for a clear settlement, 
it is ultimately best to cast lots, leaving the decision to divine providence. This is so interesting. Recommending, like almost rolling the dice and saying, hey, you know, hell's, heads I win, tails I lose, right? Why that we both agree that we're going to go with this because it's too complicated to figure out for ourselves. A person may be certain of winning once he tells the side to the judge. Yet he does not know what the other party will argue in refutation, right? You, you go to court, you might have a lawyer, you might have an amazing case and an amazing argument, but you don't know what the other side is cooking up. It could be that they're going to discredit everything you have to say or come up with something totally unexpected that's going to throw your side into doubt. Hence, the outcome is never certain. A man's expectancy of his inheritance may be as mighty as a strong city, right? So this is talking about these this story of these brothers who are supposed to inherit something. And unfortunately, this very often leads to a lot of contention. Yet his brothers may criminally defraud him. So maybe he was supposed to inherit a lot, but his siblings figured out a way to take his inheritance away from him. Judgments in law can bar a person from his property or his rights like the powerful bolt of a castle. So that's what verse 19 means. A brother may def be defrauded out of a strong city as judgments at law are like the bolt of a castle. Once you've taken your brother to court, then whatever the court decides you have to do. And it might mean that you're not going to get what you thought you were going to get. Hence, casting lots is in the end far preferable. So try your hardest not to schlep a fellow Jew to court, but rather to settle things by yourselves or with help in as peaceably a way as you possibly can. You know, I very often, whenever we talk about these kinds of things, I very often mention my grandfather. My grandfather, Rabbi Shalom Heimowitz, he always used to tell us nothing is worse, nothing is worth the price of peace. He was so intent on maintaining peaceful relationships with family and friends. And I may have shared this with you, but when my grandmother passed away, uh, I don't remember how many years ago it was, it was, it was, no, my grandmother passed away one year ago. My grandfather passed away like seven years ago. Actually, her yard site is coming up soon, her one year yard site. And, um, you know, my mother and her siblings were went to the house to try and divvy up the stuff and try to figure it out. And my mother and my aunt both really wanted a certain writing desk that belonged to my grandfather. And I was talking to my mother about it. And she was saying, you know, Zaidi would have said that if, if I would ask him, you know, I really want your desk and so does, you know, my sister, what should I do? He would have said to me, nothing is worth the price of peace. And he would have wanted me to have his legacy of peace far more than he would have wanted me to have his desk. So I just thought that was so beautiful. And that was such an incredible legacy that he gave us far more than any of the material, you know, heirlooms or possessions that he handed down. And that's really what our verses are trying to teach us. Okay. Any final thoughts or comments, ladies, today? Um, Eve shared with us, and it came from Lori Palatnik, that yeah. she she lives the same way. And I she, I think she said something like, I pay for shalom. And I think it was talking about like family situations. And something came up for me a couple of days later. And it was exactly that. Wow. And I ended up just like paying a little bit extra for shalom. And it felt so good. Yeah. And I was so grateful to hear those 
those words. It's awesome. That's really beautiful. Good for you. Okay. Any other final thoughts before we go? Okay. So wonderful to see you all. Thank you for participating. May our Torah study be a merit for our soldiers and for our hostages and for the entire Jewish people. Amen. Bye, guys. Bye. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.